Shrink Wrap Radio number 876, clinical psychologist Dr. Keith Sutton on working systematically with individuals, couples, and families for lasting change. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is clinical psychologist Dr. Keith Sutton. He's director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, and runs numerous family therapy training programs. Today's interview will focus on his unique integration that guarantees change with real staying power. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Keith Sutton, welcome to Shrink Back Shrink Wrap Radio. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me, David. And uh, I should say welcome back, because in a way... We had an interview years ago, I don't remember when, but in my other podcast that I did for a few years that was called Wise Counsel Podcast, and that's become kind of inaccessible. And uh, so we said, well, let's let's do it again. And uh, so I'm really glad to have this opportunity to speak to you again. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah, that, that podcast was back in 2009. So it's so nice to talk to you all these years later. Yeah, and uh, your your career has uh, moved far along from I think where it was back then to uh, to a really impressive place that we'll be talking about here. Um, well, if you're ready to jump in, uh, maybe you can give us a thumbnail sketch of your background and how you came to specialize in family therapy. But first. Let's talk about your own family of origin. Okay, sure. Tell us about that. Uh, so I grew up in uh, Connecticut, in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. My parents, uh, my dad was a plumber. My mom was a bookkeeper. And uh, they divorced when I was six years old. Okay. Um, so we grew up in a, in a middle-class kind of family you know, situation um, in, in Norwalk there. And actually, when I, in seventh grade, I was asked to write a report on what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I thought about it, and I really enjoyed talking, you know, to friends about their problems and kind of helping them. And I was interested in the way the mind works. And there was also a TV show called Growing Pains, where the dad was a uh, therapist. He worked at home. And uh -huh. I thought, that was great. So I wrote a paper on becoming a psychologist when I was in the seventh grade. Wow. And then basically got on that track ever since and was the first in my my immediate family to go to college um so yeah that was kind of my path 
Yeah, yeah. Some similarities there. Me too. I also came from a working class family and uh and uh, I think I was the first in my immediate family to go to college. So mm-hmm. um so we share that bit of history there. Uh yeah. I was curious um it it doesn't sound like you experienced family therapy. I thought maybe maybe you got hooked on maybe uh, your family went to family therapy and maybe that's <laughs> how you found out about it and got hooked on it. Yeah, no, they actually went later on with my little brother and actually is extremely helpful. You know the the way I got into family therapy. So I in grad school was you know or sorry in undergrad my interest in was working with teenagers. And so I assumed I'd be working with teenagers individually, um, doing individual therapy. I hadn't even really conceptualized a family therapy. And I worked at a teen shelter uh, for adolescent girls who had been taken out of the home due to child protective services. And then also at a residential treatment for adolescent boys who are sent from all over the country who uh, you know, had, were in a treatment program for aggression. And I worked with them you know, just separately from their families. But when I moved from Denver, where I did my under graduate to Santa Barbara, I worked at a teen shelter there and we'd have the kids, they'd come in. And then about a day later, we would meet with the kids and their parents. And I quickly learned that when you put the kids back in the context of the families, a lot made sense, both their strengths as well as some of the maladaptive patterns. So I got really interested in family therapy and, you know, kind of working with children, adolescents and families. And that was kind of my focus going into graduate school. Yeah, and interestingly that that you were working with kids so early because uh, when I interviewed you before, back when did you say it was? 2009. 2009. Uh, we spoke about your work with oppositional kids. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, and so that was fascinating. And so in a way, you, you've stayed on track and just deepened your your work. So tell us a bit about your, your training too. Uh, you have yeah. an incredible, incredible amount of good training. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's a funny story. I tell this when I, I uh, do my trainings because I kind of, you know, really had to learn in those areas where I felt like the approach that I was using didn't cover. So before grad school, I actually moved up to the San Francisco Bay area and worked at a drug and alcohol treatment program for adolescents. And so that was very systemically oriented. So going into graduate school, that was my focus. I had also done some training in motivational interviewing early on. And uh-huh. so the kind of postmodern client-centered approach was really uh, stood out to me. So I ended up doing training in narrative therapy. Um, and I had a great narrative supervisor. Uh, I did a training with Michael White when he was alive. I also yeah. did a training with another uh, postmodern therapist uh, in Kim Berg, who did uh, develop solution-focused therapy. And so I really enjoyed that work, and I liked the aspects of collaboration and the therapist taking the one-down approach um, and, and a lot of the transparency that's involved with that approach. But I quickly What, what went, do you mean when you say the one-down approach? So one-down approach, so um, particularly that the client is the expert on their own experience. Okay. And the therapist brings in their experience, but that really we're kind of honoring the client's knowledge and experience and kind of bringing that together. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than kind of the, the you know, kind of one-up approach, which is more the therapist is the expert and the client is there to listen and learn or take the therapist's interpretations or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah, and a lot of people who come into therapy start out with that assumption mm-hmm. and and uh, really will 
put you on the throne, and you have to you have to work to educate them to get get off the throne, right? Yeah, and it's really you know it's really a collaboration between the therapist and the client. Yeah. And that's one of the great things I learned from motivational interviewing. One of the biggest takeaways that I got from that was that resistance is not necessarily something that's within the client, but it's something that happens between the ther- the therapist and the client. So actually, when we hit that resistance as a therapist, it gives us a clue that there's something that's going on that we may be doing to evoke that. Um, so really kind of being able to back it up, understand our client, get to a place where they feel like we understand, and then we can move forward. Because really the alliance is is the basis for everything. You know, the Common Factors Research has found this. Um, yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to get introduced to Scott Miller and uh, Barry Duncan's work. Yeah. back early in my career using the outcome rating scale and session rating scale. And one of the things that they found is by getting feedback on your sessions, right? they could increase outcome by 65%, regardless of theoretical orientation, because therapists tend to overestimate how good the therapy is going and overestimate how good their alliance is. Yeah, I uh, actually had the privilege of uh, hearing Scott Miller in person years mm. ago. And was so so impressed by what he had to say that I also followed up with one or two podcast interviews. So people people will find him. But uh, yeah, very uh, creative uh, Mm -hmm. guy. Brings a lot of lot of creativity to his work. Yeah. And and, um, one of the things I found myself wondering is, you know, given that uh, that you came from a, a working class family. Having looked at your recent work where mm-hmm. you're training people in family therapy sure. and and in your the and a variety of approaches to family therapy that we'll get into, um, I'm impressed by your your work ethic. You, you have a <laughs> uh, an ethic of hard work. <laughs> yes, yes. Where where the heck did that come from? Uh, gosh, when I was uh, 12, I started uh, a, a paper route. And, uh, you know, ended up buying out a couple of the other paper boys in the neighborhood. And <laughs> you were an long. entrepreneur already. <laughs> yeah. And then I and then I used to work summers. Uh, my grandfather run a, a printing company. And so I'd be doing the, the big old huge blueprints uh, through the machine. Wow. Worked at, you know, a camera store, a grocery store. Um, I volunteered, did all, all sorts of stuff. And I worked all through college and worked two jobs after college. Because to work at a teen shelter back then, it was, you know, you only got paid like $8 an hour. So I had to work another full-time job as a waiter to basically be able to live. But I really loved the work with the clients that I was working with. And so it was worth it. Um, but yeah, no, so I've always been, I actually, uh, I was joking with my supervisor because graduate school felt like a little bit of a vacation because I actually <laughs> just got to just focus on graduate school and not having to work two jobs at the same time. Yeah, yeah, wow. That's, that's a really fascinating history. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that you've, um, well, we're going to skip around with a variety sure. of, of well, questions David, here. Yeah. Uh, if I could jump in, because so the I did that training in narrative therapy and, and more the postmodern. But then I quickly learned that if you're going to, you know, that that I'm, I'm a little too directed for more of the postmodern approaches. I'm from the East Coast. I kind of go very quickly. So I ended up gravitating towards structural strategic family therapy, and I did some training in brief strategic family therapy with Olga Hervis from University of Miami, 
I also uh, got trained in attachment-based family therapy, Guy Diamond's model for depressed adolescents. Vicariously got some multidimensional family therapy training from my supervisor who was certified. Did some family-based therapy for, uh, for anorexia training from Kara Fitzpatrick at Stanford, training in emotionally focused family therapy. And I was at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto with a strategic family therapy team. Yes, yeah. I quickly learned if you're going to work with a family, you need to know how to work with a couple because oftentimes the parents were really struggling. So I ended up getting trained in Gottman Method Couples Therapy and then also Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy. And I went on to get certified in EFT and I'm one of the uh, handful of EFT certified supervisors in the area. So the family work was going well and the couples work was going well, but I didn't really have the tools for kind of say, you know, working with panic attacks or so on. So I ended up actually deciding to dive into cognitive behavioral therapy because my minor in undergraduate was in Eastern philosophy. And the idea of the way that our perceptions color our experience really spoke to me. So I ended up going out to the Albert Ellis Institute and doing some uh, workshops with Albert Ellis when he was alive. Yeah. The Beck Institute in Philadelphia did some training with Judith and Aaron Beck when they were alive or when Beck was alive. Um, did some training with Edna Foa in exposure with response prevention, training with Robin Walser in acceptance commitment therapy, did some DBT training. And so, and along <laughs> the way, I also got trained in EMDR. So I integrate the family systems, the EFT, the EMDR, and the CBT into my work and kind of my, my under my kind of overarching grounding isn't working systemically. Um, and then actually in the last several years, I've really dug a lot deeper into working with complex PTSD because yes. the, the, the couples of families that I was working with where they were kind of working with me the longest term, I realized that actually the common factor was complex PTSD. So I did dug deeper into that area. Pete Walker's wonderful book, Complex PTSD, Surviving the Thriving, did some training in, in uh, internal family systems with Dick Schwartz. Um, did a, a training course with uh, Janina Fisher. And so really kind of digging into more of the kind of structural dissociation models. And so that's kind of been my path to, to where I am today and really integrating yeah. together. What a path. And I think our audience will better understand my comment about your work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know, because, because uh, just the way that you went after all of these uh, different approaches to yeah. to get as fully equipped as you could is, mm -hmm. is quite remarkable. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that you pointed out, well, I want to start off and ask you, what do you see as the special strengths of family therapy? Yeah. So, and I want to actually even comment on this aspect of family therapy, because I think oftentimes when people think of family therapy, they think of just the parents and the kid kind of talking together or so on. But it, systemic thinking goes beyond just the family or the even kind of nuclear family that we mm -hmm. think about. So it, as a systemic thinker, you know, you're thinking about how all these different interactions are playing out. So I might work with an individual adult and then like one client, we work through her panic attacks and as we're working more, there was some traumas. We did some EMDR work. And then I thought, you know what? I can either work on this attachment in our relationship in kind of a psychodynamic way, but instead actually let me bring in her partner, her husband, 
and actually work with her current attachment figure. So we shifted into emotionally focused couples therapy to really strengthen the relationship. And as we you know, helped make improvements there, then actually during the pandemic, a lot of the kids start, stuff started coming up. So we did a little of the family therapy work and helping her be an attachment figure to her daughter. So, you know, with with the systemic thinking, we can kind of move in and out of individual to couples, couples to family and, and so on, and really kind of help create this larger shift. Because in systemic thinking, we make small changes in different areas of the system. Yeah. Get these big impacts because we have these kind of reverberating, uh, you know, kind of ripple effects. Um, and there's a lot of people that do family therapy, but are more of an individual thinker. So they are doing, say, individual therapy with a child or a teenager, and then they might occasionally bring the parents in and kind of help support the teen or child and talking yeah. to the parents, yeah. um, which is very helpful, too. <coughs> Although as a as a systemic thinker, my goal is to really put myself out of a job and really to help that system change. So not just being the advocate for the child with the parent, but really helping the parent to learn how to draw the kids out. And helping the kids feel that comfort to be able to talk more. In, in um, Guy Diamond's attachment-based family therapy model, uh, which originally was uh, developed in working with kids who had just attempted suicide, basically the question was, you know, when you're feeling so bad, can you turn to your parent? And if not, what gets in the way? And you help prepare that adolescent to talk. You help prepare the parent to listen. And then really can choreograph these moments of connection. And yeah. when... The kids have, uh, you know, that ability to really turn and have that strong attachment, then their depression, their anxiety goes down. And I actually think about it. It was actually from a podcast that you had uh, done years ago. Uh, one of the people you were interviewing, she talked about some EMDR work she was doing with some kids and families. And she said it was almost like like a mat, two magnets that were polarized, just kind of turning around and locking in that in that kind of session or what I call it a stage four session in, in um, my and Jim Kimes model, uh, that's a four stage method, that when we're able to help the kids get really vulnerable, really help the parents hear and understand, then it's like all the kind of defensiveness and so goes out the window and they just show up for their, their child in such an incredible way. So much of your current career is involved in uh training other therapists in mm -hmm. in these approaches and mm -hmm. uh <clears throat> and you're doing the uh the training a lot of the training is online you've mm -hmm. you've you've created uh uh pretty much standalone and you you uh privileged me to be able to uh look at one of your courses which I really appreciated so yeah. I could get a better idea of where you were coming from, what you were doing these days, and um, so it made me makes me wonder uh, how much of if if you can put a percentage on it, how much sure. of your time is spent online doing therapy uh, training uh -huh. versus versus how much is done with families these days. Sure. Sure. So actually, I uh, let's see. So I am doing about 34 hours a week and about 32 of those are with clients. Um, and so the training, I actually have a group supervision that I run weekly. I have actually 
two aspects of my practice. Um, I have my Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, which is our group practice of licensed experience folks. And then we also have our associated nonprofit, Bay Area Community Counseling, where we have our um, uh, associates, MFT, uh, LCSW, and so on. But the rest of the time is working with clients. Only about 25% of the clients that I work with are children, adolescents, and families, because I like to be home for dinner with my own kids. Uh, <laughs> If I could, I would I would have, you know, 100% of my clients, um, but about 25% are couples and about 50% individual adults. But of all of those clients, about 90, 95%, I've worked with their system at some point or another. Yeah, with the system. And, and uh, you know, that's fascinating. We really wrestled with uh, how to name this, uh, this interview. I needed a title, yeah. you know, that yeah. I could draw people in with. And we kind of went back and forth on that. And originally I thought, well, let's focus on those oppositional kids that we talked about yeah. years yeah. ago. And one of the titles that you suggested more recently, really, and I can see why, because you you wanted to get everything into the title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that title contained uh, Breaking the Rules of Therapy, Moving between individual couples and family therapy with the same clients by working systematically. So yeah. I felt I felt that was uh, awkward for a title for the for the <laughs> show, but at the same time, it um, you know it encompasses all all these influences that you're integrating in your mm -hmm. in your work and your trainings and um, so. Let's stick. Let's draw down a little bit from that title. Sure. Uh, you yeah. refer to breaking the rules. What are the rules that you're breaking? What are you referring to there? Well, and I think that they are more kind of mental rules that that many therapists have that okay. you can't say. You know, uh, uh, do couples work with somebody that you've been doing individual therapy with. Or you can't say do some individual therapy with a parent of a family that you're working with. And particularly, you know, there's there's no rule against that. You have to, of course, be aware of dual relationships and the effect that may have on, you know, confidentiality and how open and, and really kind of making sure you've got all clear consents around that. But particularly, it's more out of a individualistic perspective. Um, you know, when there's more of a, say, a psychodynamic where there's a frame of the therapy and you don't want to necessarily break the frame because your client yeah. is, you know, uh, projecting the transference onto you. Then you can't then bring in another part of the system. But in more of a systemic approach and systemic thinking, you can move in and out. I've, you know, worked with lots of different combinations of clients, and you know, we we talk about benefits and risks of kind of say bringing in a partner to do couples therapy after doing individual therapy. They might lose that individual outlet and everything we've talked about is going to be open. There's no secrets in, in the couple therapy that I do. Rarely have I had anybody that said, no, I don't want to do that. They're like, no, I'm happy to share this with my partner. And ultimately what we're trying to go for, right, is to create that openness and that connection. Mm -hmm. Or many of the teenagers I work with, you know, in that first session, I oftentimes ask them zero to hundred percent. How much do you feel like your parent understands you? And they give me a rating or so on. And I say, and if they understood you more 90, 95%, what would that be like? Almost always they say, wow, that would be great. We'd fight less. They'd be yeah. less hard. We'd yeah. get along. Yeah. 
And that idea of that connection is really kind of what what we're going for there. Um, so yeah, so so I think that that's a, a big piece. Yeah, and so that's kind of we don't need to expand everything in that title, but um, you, there is uh, you mentioned a behavioral approach, and that's one aspect. And uh, you know from listening to the show that my allegiances tend to be in uh, humanistic, transpersonal, mm-hmm. um, uh, human potential areas, mm-hmm. and. Um, but I've been impressed by some of the behavioral stuff that I've, uh, uh, some of my guests who come from a behavioral yeah. point of view have broadened my narrowness in terms of my own thinking. Yeah. And um, so, well, I mean, so you want to talk about in what ways is your approach behavioral? Sure. So one of the ways I conceptualize the, the therapy is in five phases. So the okay. first phase assessing, figuring out what's going on. The second phase is first order change. So that's where we're just trying to stop the bleeding, decrease the anxiety, the depression, increase the functioning. The third phase is that second order change. So there's a term in systems theory, the idea of kind of changing the system so things don't just slide back, you know, a month after mm-hmm. therapy yeah. or whatever it might be. So on an individual level, this might be internalizing some of the CBT tools. Um, I might do EMDR at this stage to do some of that bottom-up processing. Um, Or uh, we might go from individual therapy to couples therapy and bring in the partner to really create that that change that's going to be lasting. Um, And then in uh, in the fourth phase, that's maintenance. So that might be one session. That might be a number of sessions. Basically, there's a bump in the road, set things back. Or are are things going well? And then the fifth phase is relapse prevention, kind of wrapping it up. So in that kind of second phase where we're creating that first order change, oftentimes that's when I'm going to use, say, uh, exposure therapy for panic attacks. Or uh, I do a lot of work with adults, children, adolescents with ADHD. Actually, 50% of my practice comes to me regarding ADHD, which is a specialty of mine and a center within our institute is called the Bay Area Center for ADHD. And so for many of the clients with ADHD, we're first starting out behaviorally, time management, organization, just getting to the to the sessions on time and not, you know, and helping make sure they're not losing their jobs. And once we get some of that stability, then we can go much deeper. And that's where we're using the cognitive behavioral therapy, oftentimes working on shame, which is one of the central features for many adults with ADHD. Um, we might do some exposure because actually there's 45% comorbidity between anxiety and ADHD in self-referred adults in one study. And oftentimes, not only is it hard to get going on things because there's the distraction, but there's also the avoidance. So we might do some exposure. We might then bring in a partner. There's all these kind of different things. We might do some EMDR around some of those early traumas, um, whether big T or little t. So these are kind of the different ways that we're working and the behavioral interventions, and I can talk about kind of our four stage approach for working with children and adolescents. I'll talk about kind of the oppositional if you, if you like, but this idea of using kind of these behavioral interventions to help the person get stabilized, increase their functioning. And the way I think about it is we're kind of helping clients go from bad to good to great. So that aspect of like you're talking about of kind of actualization, connecting with one's values, going in the directions of one's values and really creating a fulfilling life. 
um, is so important. Um, but sometimes we need to kind of get out of the chaos and the crisis of the week quickly so then we can actually kind of have a foundation to build upon. Yeah, well, it seems to me that you're, what you're doing is uh, a radical integration of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of value, valued approaches. And instead of getting locked into just one mode, that you're really covering the waterfront and integrating and being flexible. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, so I'm wondering, and one of the things I was struck by is, you know, I was thinking, well, let's talk about your book. And mm-hmm. and you, you don't have a book, I guess. I don't have a book yet. <laughs> and I can, I can understand that you don't have a book because you're so busy doing all of yes, this stuff. Yes. So I'm wondering... Um, it seems to me that you that that you would appear to be well poised to be in a major leadership role in the field, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering, uh, what's your sense of how influential you've been able to be, given that you don't have the book? Sure, sure. So uh, particularly, actually, I made a decision way back, actually, right around when we had talked. Um, that I really want to look at how I want my life to be. So you were mentioning about you know, all the training and such. The first year I renewed my license, you're supposed to get 36 hours of continuing education. I counted up, I had 320 something hours. <laughs> I, I did all it. this training and then I had my children and I kind of had that decision point of, am I going to write a book? Am I go do, you know, talking and, and things like that, different conferences. And I decided I was going to really kind of focus on my family, my kids, and then later on, if that was in the cards for me. And actually, the Institute, um, I was at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto. And well, uh, uh, let me just interrupt to, to applaud yeah. you that uh, that you decided in favor of walking the walk rather than oh, yeah. just talking the talk that you said, wait a second, I'm having a life here. I'm building a family you know, and there have been family therapists who had no families. You yes, know, one yeah. of one of the most influential people in the field was Virginia Satir. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I took workshops with uh, Virginia Satir back in the day, but she had no family. She spent all of her time traveling around the country and the world, mm-hmm. training people. Yeah, yeah. So good for you. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people I know that are family therapists that don't have families for whatever reason. Um, I've got one uh, person I know, their family because of infertility, another one out of choice, but they also have their extended family, their their uncles or aunts or, you know, their their nieces and nephews and so yeah. on. But sometimes they don't have their own children. But yeah, yeah for me, my I always want to be a dad. Um, and so that was, you know, I was always excited to have kids. And that well, was how, really- how many kids do you have and what are their ages? I have two kids, uh, 13 and nine years old. Um, okay. And I always joke that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have been working with teenagers now for, oh gosh, what, uh, 25 years. And I always said, as soon as I have a teenager, uh, it's all going to go out the window. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you um, you but, haven't hit that that famous stage of pretty severe testing <laughs> yeah, that can yeah. happen. Well, we're getting, we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, you know, with every developmental level, you know, we, we need to be flexible. And that's yeah. actually an aspect of systems theory is that when the system gets rigid and there is a developmental period and the parents don't 
become flexible and kind of create a new yeah. way of being, then we get stuck. So we're in that process of really, uh, you know, finding that. And if I may continue to be personal, are you also sure. married or a coupled up? I am married. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm actually, um, so this is my second marriage. Um, I had gotten divorced uh, some years ago and then got remarried. And um, so that gives you some authority about that because a lot of your clients are going to be in that process of having been married or getting divorced, et cetera. Well, and also to getting getting into a relationship, you know, I, I had been with my uh, my my first wife since I was uh, gosh, I was we met when I was 21 and, you know, and doing all this work and learning and so on, you know, it, I, I, I got it, but I didn't quite really get it. And then going into a relationship later on as an adult, I just got it so much more yeah. and the ability to learn how to be completely open, connected to communicate like. And I thought we had communicated in, in my first uh, marriage, but not to the level of what I really understood now. And it's really helped me, not only my wife and I have a really strong connected relationship, but also, you know, really in in me helping the couples that I work with. Right. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes they'll get to a place where it's kind of good. I'm like, it could be better. And so really kind of helping them because I know what that is like and that kind uh -huh. of and. And also how to get it, which is nice. And the EFT is just a perfect kind of modality to get there. Uh, yeah. the, the EFT stands for? Oh, uh, sorry. Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy. Okay. Johnson's work yeah. that's based on attachment theory. Okay, yes. Attachment theory. Yeah, well, you have uh, that was on my uh, list of things to talk about. Um, say a little, because attachment theory uh, seems to have really come into its own and right. uh it's it's so important and and we understand attachment now not just from a psychoanalytic point of view but a neuropsychoanalytic point of mm -hmm. view you know we know about attachment systems in the brain and so on so uh, this has been a really hot area that i've just been very excited to be on the sidelines of sure yeah, no, it's so important. And actually, I was working with a couple where I was using some of my, you know, Gottman level one training with, and I ended up doing the training with uh, Sue Johnson and Scott Woolley uh, in EFT. And I brought my couple down to be to do a live demonstration. And it was like night and day, like, in the work we were doing, we were just skimming the surface. And this really got to the heart of the matter in what Scott was able to do in just this one session. And it just, it just sold me. It just yeah. made sense. And really for the couples that I work with, the way that I conceptualize attachment is that to the extent that the other is responsive, whether to talk about our bad day, talk about the thing they said that upset us or for the kids to, you know, talk about what's going on for them. Um, and then also to the extent that we feel loved, accepted, respect in the relationship, when those two things are there, things are going well. When we're not, when they're not there, we tend to get into these patterns or these cycles where we're usually trying to do the thing that makes most sense to us to either gain connection or prevent distance. Um, but sometimes it's the opposite of what the other person needs. So we end up getting going back and forth in these, what we call an EFT, these cycles that end up drawing us, kind of moving us farther apart and so in EFT, we're really identifying those cycles, slowing it down, helping our part, the, the clients turn to their partner vulnerably. And then in that stage two work, really do that rebonding work. 
But I mean, the way I think about it, you know, attachment not only is, it makes sense, of course, in relation to couples or children, adolescents, and families, but also with our sense of self. Um, when I was at the Beck Institute, Judith Beck had discussed some of Aaron Beck's writing and how he talked about all automatic thoughts boil down to feeling helpless, hopeless, or unlovable. And it really struck me because the, the couples I was working with, when their partner was not responsive, they felt helpless, they felt hopeless. Mm-hmm. When they didn't feel um, uh, loved, respected, valued, they felt maybe maybe I'm actually unlovable. And so I thought not only do we relate to others this way, but also to our sense of self. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot more training in uh, parts work and IFS, uh, internal family systems, and this idea of kind of our responsiveness to the different parts of ourself. Right. Uh, and so not only is kind of attachment the way we relate to others, but also to ourself. And as well as the world, when there's been trauma, for example, the world does not feel responsive. It feels out of control. So that's kind of one way. And then I also think about in our therapeutic relationship, there's also that attachment and not necessarily in a, you know, needing to reparent the person in more of a kind of analytic way, but more does our client feel like we're responsive and do they feel not necessarily that we love them, but that unconditional positive regard, feeling valued, respected, and when we have that, we have that that good attachment, and we can even get that beginning in the initial phone, uh, phone call. And actually, that that uh, outcome research, the Scott Miller and Barry Duncan, I think about that in attachment terms. Is at the end of the session, as the client's giving feedback, they might say, "Gosh, I felt like you didn't understand what I was saying about my mother." And I could say, "Well, let me write that down. That's really important. I want to start off at the beginning of the next session." Or I might say, "You're right. I don't think I was conveying how betrayed you felt." Hopefully that client is walking away feeling they've experienced me as responsive and that I'm valuing and what they have to say is important. So they're not walking away going, oh, he didn't get me today, but more feel like, oh, there was a miss, but it's important to my therapist that he gets me. So again, that kind of that, that idea of that attachment and feeling understood yeah. and safe. Now you've been talking about systems and that makes me think about the larger systems that we're embedded in. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it, in the U.S., the political systems, the mm-hmm. the um, the yeah the, the splits that are happening in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very this is a difficult time to be an individual, mm-hmm. let alone to be a family, and. Um, so how is that cross-cutting your work? Yeah. Well, in, in we always have to think about kind of the multiple levels of systems. Yeah. Uh, I mean, particularly, you know, in the areas of culture, around uh, issues around privilege, around uh, uh, racism, sexism, genderism, you know, all these kind of aspects are affecting our clients, as well as the dynamic between the therapist and the client. Um, also right, looking at kind of the movements that's happening in the culture with the news and how that's affecting clients and increasing levels of anxiety, increasing animosity, you know, there's all these kind of aspects that, you know, is, is a kind of a beyond the scope of this discussion, but right. Like the way that even the news agent, the agencies are changing and needing to get clicks, Right because there's less newspapers. So they have to say things that are inflammatory 
And it's right. not just reporting the facts, but more what's going to have that yeah. emotional impact on the person, right. to get them to, to click on that. And so we've got a lot of, you know, and also, you know, what's happened in the culture too, around a culture of mistrust, mistrusting experts and so yeah. on. It's yeah. really wreaked havoc in, you know, our, our political system and our, um, you know, kind of organizational structures um, and, and, and so on. But really kind of looking at those multiple levels of systems is so important because it, it all applies. Yeah, it does all apply. And in a sense, you're swimming against that tide of, um, <laughs> and, and, and um, so it'll be interesting, interesting to see as time goes on, how you're able to navigate some of the changes that we're all being uh, yeah. challenged by. Well, and a systemic thinker is always thinking about context. Yeah. And how that context is affecting the individual. Um, I forget if it, I, uh, I, I heard Phil Zimbardo, uh, who did the Stanford uh, Person Study Experiment, yeah. asked. And as he was talking about it, he added something I'd never heard before. He said, you know what? Uh, Stanley Milgram uh, actually grew up just only a few blocks away from him. They didn't know each other. Huh, he said, yeah. what was it about that neighborhood in the Bronx that led these two people to go do this profound research right. on systems? And so just kind of uh, on context and how that affects, you know, people. Um, and, and so it's just interesting what was going on in the context of that neighborhood in New York that led these two people to get these ideas and go on to this incredible research. Yeah, just maybe you can uh, give us a thumb. I'm not sure how uh, how much our Comment, audience familiar. is up yeah. on these people. So maybe give us just a quick uh, yeah, yeah. The Prison Experiment by uh, by Zimbardo and and how would you care and the um, the, the experiments on authority, yeah, with uh, authority, Milton. yeah, so, authority. So yeah, the prison experiment. study, basically they, you know, took a bunch of college students and made some of them the prisoners and some of them the guards and they actually assessed them all that there was no kind of psychological issues or so on and what they found was actually they had to stop the experiment because the guards were becoming sadistic and being abusive towards the the um uh the inmates and so on um and so just again putting them in that context led these people that were just kind of everyday students and so on to be acting in this way and in Milgram's experiment, um, there was a, they were kind of looking at how the person responds to authority. And there was a person who was a doctor and telling the, the test subject to kind of turn up a dial, electrocuting another test subject. The other test subject was an actor and there was no electrocu electrocution going on. But they were, the idea was that maybe, you know, it was kind of looking at Nazis in Germany and maybe they were more susceptible to authority than Americans or so on. But what they found is that most of the people turned up and just kept following the uh the head, the person of the study the doctor until the point where some of the people were passing out and the 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 actor was acting like they were almost dying and they passed out and were not responsive but people kept going but the point is that when we go into a context it really has a significant effect and these people again assessed for being kind of normal no particular issues that they ended up acting in these very abnormal ways because of the context. Right. So the systemic thinker when working with kids or adolescents, I want to be thinking about, you know, 
what's going on also in their interactions with their parents. How are they affecting their parents? How are their parents affecting them? Going a ring out, looking at their relationships with institutions, schools, churches, also going out farther, right? Looking at socioeconomic status, culture, immigration status, all of these kind of aspects are playing in to what we're seeing in the room. I think it's instructive to help us be less judgmental in the sense of realizing that, you know, we, we tend to think in absolutes of this person's good, this person is bad, but mm -hmm. really, you know, what was the, how did they get that way? What was the, what were the cultural and fa familial influences and so on? You know, I want to, yeah, go ahead. I was going to add one last piece to what you're saying there. It's called the attributional bias. And yeah. uh, my colleague, Jim Keim, who uh, used to be the clinical director for J. Haling, Floyd Madonna's developers of strategic family therapy. When he'd teach with me, he'd bring up this example that a, uh, a comedian gave said, it's like kind of like driving on the highway. Whoever's uh, going too, uh, too slow is an idiot. And whoever's driving faster than you is crazy. Yeah, um, right. That idea that it's all relative and particularly the attributional bias is that we apply a trait to another person. That's an angry person. But to ourselves, we apply a state. Oh, I was just angry because X, Y and Z happened because of the. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, I want to make sure that we have uh, that I give you plenty of opportunity to uh, set your wares out on the table and let sure. people know about all the various uh, services and courses that you're offering and sure. so that people who are who want to learn more or who want to get training uh, can know about what's out there yeah definitely one and maybe i can speak to kind of one of our my main areas that i'm i'm interested in of course as we talked about as families and and particularly my my highest interest is good old, you know, out of control adolescence. And that's what kind of led to our first interview on oppositional defiant disorder. Yeah. Um, and so I, I originally mentioned I worked at teen shelters, kids running away, drugs and alcohol, all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up actually connecting with Jim Pine, who had done uh, some work on a four stage model with oppositional defiance disorder. And we ended up pairing up together and working together and kind of developing that model into a trans diagnostic model. And so the, the way that we work is that, you know, so kind of conceptualize this in four stages, which maps onto those five phases. But the, the first stage is assessment. So meeting with the teenagers or the kids and the parents and kind of finding out from everybody what's going on. And a lot of people say, oh, it's so hard to do family therapy. It's hard to get families in. I actually never use the term family therapy because I just can't quite do it any, any other way. Um, and what I tell the parents on the phone is I just kind of explain what we're going to do. And they're like, of course, that makes sense. And I, I want the parents in there for that first session to find out, you know, everybody's perspective and find out who the resources are, right? Because the parents are the resources. So meet with them all together, meet with the kids for a little bit, parents for a little bit, bring them all back together with a plan. The second stage is the preparation stage. So in an externalizing situation, we are meeting with the teenager, getting to know them, finding out what's going on. Many kids that are oppositional say, you know, oh, there's no problem. It's just my parents. So we say, great, what can we change with your parents and go with that energy? Um, and then with parents, we're teaching them some skills for co-regulation and really kind of helping them to get out of those escalations with, with the, uh, their defiant child or teen. Um, Jim Kime actually uh, talks about kind of a, what we call the process orientation. 
that for kids uh, that are oppositional, they tend to be more process oriented than outcome oriented. And one way of kind of uh, giving this example is that say if somebody went to a Japanese tea ceremony and they thought, gosh, I'm going to get some quick tea. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's more about the ritual and the process. So they'd be very disappointed. So for kids, of course, they want what they want, but when they can't get what they want, if they're in control of the process, there's some sense of control. And so they tend to be controlling of the timing, either you got to do this now, or I'll do that later, or the direction you go to talk about A, they start arguing about B, you get into it about B, it all blows up. And then you're like, wait, what happened to A? I asked them to clean up the room. They started arguing about their sibling and then it all blew up and the room's still dirty. Or the third one, which is the mood. The parent comes in with one mood, child comes in with another mood and the child pushes the buttons to determine the parent's mood. And so part of what we're doing in that second stage is really helping to understand that conceptualization and helping parents to kind of shift from kind of being bulls locking horns with the kids to more being like the bullfighter that can step out of the way. And this work is that second stage then sets us up for the third stage, which are your behavioral interventions. So these are your typical rules, consequences, uh, rewards. And the way that we do this is we ground it in the family's values, because oftentimes kids feel like parents are parenting by mood rather than values. Mom's in a good mood today, so she lets me you know, have my phone. She's in a bad mood, she takes it away rather than it be connecting to the kids' behaviors and what's happening or the family values. And the third stage is after the second stage, because if the parents and the kids aren't getting out of those power struggles, the rules and consequences just become another opportunity for power struggles. So once we get that third stage going, then there's some more containment, things are less out of control, the parents are feeling better and having feeling more empowered which then sets us up for the fourth stage. And that's the one that's based on the attachment-based family therapy for depressed adolescents, Guy Diamond's model. And so we're helping give parents tools to get the kids talking, drawing them out and getting the kids to express themselves directly rather than acting it out. And at this point, because things are less out of control, then oftentimes parents can show up. If we don't have that structure piece first, then the kid will say, oh, it always felt bad when you're yelling at me. And the parent says, well, what else am I supposed to do? You wouldn't do your homework. But after we've got some structure and they have some tools for getting them to do the homework, then they can be able to say, oh, tell me more about that. How did that feel when I was yelling at you? And what is it like for you now? Stage four is also kind of what one would think of kind of as a more typical family therapy, these deep kind of connecting conversations. But if the if they don't have oftentimes that structure piece, they might have a really good connecting conversation, but then a week later, the parent's screaming, yelling at them about the homework, and the kids feels like, oof, I shouldn't have trusted that things could be different, and they put another brick in the, in the wall. And for many folks that do individual therapy and then bring in the parents and aren't working systemically, oftentimes they might have some of these experiences where they finally prepared the adolescent to talk and they share but they, the therapist hasn't built a relationship with the parent. So the parents either feeling ganged up on and they might yeah, get defensive. Yeah, yeah. And then the parent and then the therapist determines, oh, that parent's not ready for family therapy or they, you know, or the parent will show up and say all the right things. But then afterwards, things will fall apart. And the next week, the teenager will say, oh, yeah, well, they were just telling you what you wanted to hear. And so it's really a lot of that kind of preparation work and setting it up and really that strong alignment with each party in the system 
that helps us choreograph that moment where we can really help the, the child or adolescent be vulnerable and really help their parent to, to really kind of lean in. Um, one family I was working with, uh, the, the daughter was sharing about, uh, or the dad was, uh, he was from Mexico. He was very uh, kind of a machismo guy. And he was trying very hard, he was doing good. He was like, tell me, how does that make you feel? And his, his English wasn't his first language. And the daughter said, well, you know, I feel really bad because I don't feel like I'm your little girl anymore. I know that it was my fault for smoking marijuana and, and, and such, and I feel bad, but it, it just feels so bad because I'm no longer your little girl. And the dad turned to me and said, I'm gonna to speak to her in Spanish. I said, go for it. And he turned to her, spoke to her in Spanish, the tears started coming down from her eyes. And I said, how was it? And she said, good. And I said, what did he say? And she said, he said, no matter how old you are, even when you're an adult, you will still be my little girl. There's nothing you could do to ever make that go away, no matter how bad or whatever it might be. You'll always be my little girl. And for him, right, it was seeing her in that pain, that vulnerability that just kicked in that attachment instinct to just show up and go from kind of fumbling through trying to talk about emotions and so on to just leaning right in and letting her know how important she was to him. Yeah, that's such a good story. It, it tugs at my heartstrings just yeah. hearing that story, you know. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So this, we're, we're, so we're going through those stages two, three, and four, all in that second phase, first order change. So we're going through in that, through that in about 10 to 12 sessions. And then what we're doing is we're tightening things up from there. So one way to think about it, there's there's one axis of the hard side of the hierarchy, the rules, the structure, the consequences, the rewards. And then the other axis is the soft side of the hierarchy. Who's in charge of soothing whom? Who's in charge of good things, good times, nurturance, guidance? Who can handle the hottest topics? And we need both of these for the child to be able to trust the parents and, and feel like they can be taken care of and oftentimes when they don't have that trust, they feel like they have to kind of take over. Yeah. So, and, and handling the hottest topics might be being the kid being able to talk about the divorce or talk about their gender identity or talk about their trauma with their parent. One of the things we do is when we're working with a kid with where we've got trauma, we're oftentimes working up to helping them talk about with their parent, which some might think, oh my gosh, like, no, you have to do individual work and keep it all private and, and boundaries and so on. But again, when the child can turn or the adolescent can turn to their parent and their parent can hear them, one family I was working with, really caring family, but uh, when the daughter would talk about her trauma with before we started therapy, the parent would start, the mom would start crying and say, well, what do you want me to do and walk away? And so this was additionally traumatizing over and over because when she would turn to her mother for that care and support, her mother it was too overwhelming. So I did some work with the mother to, and the father to help them get grounded, to be able to work through their own guilt, to then be able to show up and really have have her be able to turn and be able to hold that. So we want that kind of hard in that soft side of the hierarchy. And on the other axis, we have the parental subsystem, uh, and then we have the child subsystem. So with the parental subsystem, the, the idea is we'll get through these kind of 10 to 12 sessions, and then we might need to tighten up one of these. I kind of think about it, it's like kind of putting a, a tire on a car. You don't tighten one of the bolts all the way down, you get each one kind of going as you're yeah. going, then you tighten it up. So you might have to say, tighten up the hard side, some of the structure, because they've got that soft side pretty well. Or um, the the couple might, you might do some couples therapy with them. Or 
things are tightened up with the hard side, soft side, the couple's doing well, the parents, and then we might go deeper with the child. We might do some EMDR. Um, we might do some exposure therapy if we're working on something like OCD or whatever it might be. Um, the internalizing approach. So when we've got a kid that's coming in with uh, anxiety, depression, or so on. So in the second stage, we're introducing, so the way I do my CBT is I do kind of a little almost gestalt exercise. I have the kids and adults kind of act out the, like the devil and angel on the shoulder, those automatic thoughts listening, leading to the anxiety or depression, like kind of bringing in that other side. And so I'll have the kids do this. And then in the, I'll do some education with the parents around anxiety or depression, also around accommodation. There's some great work by Ellie Levelitz at Yale, who's actually created a program that only works with the parents and has been found to be as effective as individual CBT with children and adolescents, but it was developed with kids that were not ready for therapy or, or avoidant. Um, he's got great research. So doing some education around that, kind of understanding the accommodations, then having some sessions together and helping the kids then talk about, kind of show that exercise to the parents because they want the parents reinforcing the CBT at home and having a way to help and kind of hear the kid's anxiety and talk about it. And then I'm also going to switch the parents and have the parent talk about what happens for them when they see their child anxious. Because the research has found that when you've got a child or adolescent with anxiety, if the parent also has an anxiety disorder and it's not treated, it's much higher likelihood for relapse. So vicariously, I also want to be working on the parent's anxiety. Yeah. And like one family I'm working with right now, the mom's like, I think I need some of this there because the daughter is doing well now. And she's realizing that she needs a lot of that. In the stage three, we either might not need some structure because the kid's doing homework, not acting out, all's fine. Or we might need some structure, particularly like with ADHD kids, you know, kind of time management organization. Or we might be doing some exposure, like with OCD, doing some exposure with response prevention and kind of creating a behavioral intervention there. And then ultimately, we're leading up to then the stage four of really helping the kids talk about the depression, the anxiety, whatever it might be, and again, having parents show up. Um, I'll give one quick example of one kid I was working with who, when he was in middle school, his dad got really upset. He took off his belt, and dad had grown up um, uh, in South America. He had immigrated over to the U.S. He had experienced a lot of abuse. He never wanted to be that way with his children. He took off his belt, but then he didn't do anything. He stopped himself, and he went away. But that day, that moment, the son, it really changed his feeling of safety with his dad. And so he was became withdrawn. A couple of years later, he ended up getting depressed. So in that attachment se session, he was able to share this with his dad. His dad was in tears and, you know, I I'm, feel so bad that I never wanted that to happen. But then the kid, when I was meeting with him individually, was still having some of that reactivity. So we did some EMDR and then we did more family sessions, having him talking. And so both processing on that bottom up level of EMDR, as well as on that systemic level through the attachment relationship. Because like one family I work with, um, the way I think about it, you know, one kid, he was feeling like he was a failure. And I had him turn to his parent, talk about that. And his parent was able to say, gosh, you're not a failure to me. I love you. You're so important. I get on you about your grades, but you're not a failure. Through that attachment relationship, we're going to affect that core belief much more significantly than say a thought record of looking at the evidence for or against being a failure. So we can kind of utilize these experiential interventions or these attachment relationships to create those more kind of lasting shifts. Yeah. 
I'm blown away by the complexity of of everything that you're saying here. It's like you're a juggler who's got all these balls in the air, and yet uh, and yet you're talking about twelve sessions and and what you're going to be able to accomplish in twelve sessions. So yeah. to me, that's that's really remarkable. And well, then yeah, we're about twelve sessions to get it in place, and then we're tuning up those different areas over the next several. Usually, about I say average about twenty sessions for the family yeah. work. Uh huh. And um, um, you know, when when you're learning this stuff, when you're in graduate school or you're maybe in a workshop like the ones that that you're teaching, uh, the group processing, uh, the supervisory process, mm-hmm. you know, where all of this gets discussed. Do, do you have anything? Do you have a group that you can clinic with uh, still so while you're? You, you just set me up for the last part here. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, I, uh, so the, I'll do the quick story because I know we're almost out of time. So I was at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto and I, I moved up to Marin. So the drive was quite long. So I decided to start a one-way mirror with my client, uh, my colleague, Jim Kime. And so we were doing a one-way mirror training with teenagers and families. And then I hired on another trainer to do a one-way mirror in cognitive behavioral therapy. And then another trainer to do a one-way mirror in emotionally focused couples therapy. And the trainers and I really enjoyed talking about cases and research and keeping each other up to date. So we decided to create this group practice, which I named the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. And from there, you know, we were all fairly established, had our, you know, kind of offices and stuff. So we created this kind of hybrid practice where we would use our own offices, group practice, private practice clients all on the same day. And then we would come together to talk about research and workshops we've been to and talk about cases. And so it, it was really great because all of us were kind of trainers and really, you know, kind of um, all learning together. And so that was in 2009 that I had started that. And so we've got a great group of folks. I think we've got 18 clinicians now. And it's it's really all clinicians who love learning, who really like to integrate and kind of develop and are always, you know, keeping up on, on the different things that are going on. I actually started a podcast myself part inspired by you and loving your podcast called uh, therapy on the cutting edge um, because yeah. there's so much to learn and I don't have enough time to read all the books. So I started going yeah. folks and kind of uh, hearing, you know, kind of interviewing folks that are doing kind of things that are innovative, integrative, you know, on the cutting edge. And so I've got that group. And then I, I mentioned our nonprofit. We also have our nonprofit Bay area community counseling where we take on associates and interns where I'm training them in these four approaches of CBT, EFT, family systems, and EMDR. And so in our institute, I do these workshops that you are mentioning. And I actually, uh, you know, so I we do a CBT workshop in the fall, EFT in the winter, and a family therapy one in the spring. And then each summer we do a summer intensive. So we do one day, six hour CBT, one day, six hour emotionally focused couples therapy, one day, six hour uh, family therapy, one day, eight hour EMDR introduction. And then the last day is two hours on child therapy, two hours on motivational interviewing and two hours on ADHD assessment and treatment. And people can take one or more of those workshops that are open to licensed folks, to, to uh, grad students, or they can take the entire week. Um, so yeah, so, and all the folks in our nonprofit, they go through that entire week to get that basis in all these different theories. And then weekly, we're in group supervision. Everybody's videotaping their sessions. So we're looking over videos and I'm giving feedback and, and suggestions wow. to help yeah. them develop their skills. Um, 
And actually, I just recently in September launched the Family Institute of Berkeley, which is part of our nonprofit, Bay Area Community Counseling. And uh, in the MRI tradition, we've got folks that are, we're doing one-way mirror trainings. We're doing those over Zoom. And it's been great. We just did one with Terry Suhu in the fall here, who is the head of the Strategic Family Therapy uh, Training Program at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto. And then we're doing one in the spring with Karen Schlanger, who is um, uh, the head of the Brief Therapy Team. This is kind of one of the original Paul Waxovic, Dick Fish, um, uh, oh God, I'm working on uh, John Weekland uh, kind of systems working. And that one-way mirror training is just so great to see it live yes. and to be able to give suggestions to the therapist to help out with the family and the family having a whole team that's helping them out. Right. So and with being on Zoom, we can also be available different time zones internationally and so on for other therapists who are wanting to learn how to work systemically like this. Where can people go to find out about this rich treasure trove of stuff that you've been talking about? Is sure, there sure. a master website that uh, where they can drill down and, and yeah. find all this so there's, goodness? There's my way website, which is uh, drkeithsutton.com, D-R-K-E-I-T-H-S-U-T-T-O-N.com. There's our institute, our Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, which is SF, like San Francisco, IAP.com, like Institute Advancement Psychotherapy. And we've got a lot of workshops also on demand there. And then the other one is our, our nonprofit Bay Area Community Counseling, SF-BACC.org. Um, and then finally, the family in Um, So there's a number of different organizations <laughs> yeah, there. Really? Oh, my goodness. Um, Dr. Keith Sutton, uh, is there anything else that you haven't had a chance to say that you need to squeeze in here? <laughs> <laughs> One last piece. I'll give a plug for the Association of Family Therapists of Northern California, which is uh, an organization of MFTs, LCSWs, PhDs, PsyD, MDs, uh, uh, nurse practitioners who all work with families. And it's uh, the oldest family therapy organization in the world. And we have conferences. We also have free two-hour workshops on different topics of family therapy, some in person, some on Zoom. It's one of the least expensive kind of membership organizations to be involved with. But I'm past president. I'm also on the board currently. But that has really been my, my clinical home for years. A lot of great folks there. Um, and I think just the, the last words is just think systemically. Uh, that that really there's a lot of tools that that once you kind of can move from individual thinking to systemic thinking that are in your toolbox and a lot of great ways. So also too, you're not kind of just alone with it. That you can bring in all these resources that are within the client's world, the resources within themselves, the resources within their systems that can really help to to lift them up and and help them get better. And so. Um, yeah, I would definitely encourage kind of learning more about it if if you haven't. I know there's not a lot of training out there in systems thinking or family therapy or so on. So that's why we're trying to kind of fill some of the gap there. Yeah, well, thank you for all of these uh, resources that you've referred us to. And uh, Dr. Keith Sutton, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it.
Today's guest, clinical psychologist and family therapist, Dr. Keith Sutton, proved to be one of my most impressive guests yet. We had great rapport and were able to jump into his content expertise right away, both because he's been a longtime listener to the show and because I had actually interviewed him way back in 2009 on my other podcast, Wise Counsel. That previous interview also tapped into his family therapy expertise, but was focused more narrowly on his work with oppositional kids. It's a good thing we decided to speak again because his work and sophistication has increased explosively. I found out that his work with troubled teens began even before college. Given his intensity and dedication to working with troubled youth, I had more or less unconsciously assumed he came from a family loaded with psychoanalysts and lawyers and such. But no, his parents were working members of the middle class, and he was the first in his family to go to college, not to mention multiple graduate degrees and postgraduate trainings, certifications, and licenses. In fact, I commented on his remarkable overachieving work ethic. He sought out training and certification in just about every credible approach to therapy, family therapy, trauma work that you and I have ever heard of. In fact, one might think he's a name dropper, except all those names and approaches have a place in his work. In fact, I discovered I've interviewed many of them. So it reassures me that I've had my finger on the pulse of so much of the important work in the field. But it's not the same thing as having been actually trained by them. Oh, well, I'm only human. And Keith, I'm not so sure. What he's done is to create an amazing synthesis that flexibly integrates the best of the best. And you, my friends, can study with him by taking both in-person and virtually the courses and supervisions he's putting out there. More about that in a bit. First, let me sing his praises a bit more. First of all, did I mention he's super smart? If you've listened to our interview, that will be apparent. He's a systems thinker to the nth degree. He's not in denial. He readily acknowledges that we are all embedded in larger contexts that are global, national, cultural, racial, gendered, and so on. As a therapist, he prizes planful flexibility, moving between working individually with members of the family unit and working with them as a group. He has a roadmap such that there is always forward movement with goals and sub-goals reached within 20 to 40 sessions. Despite his amazing productivity, he's not a robot. He's warm, present, emotionally available, I was impressed by his decision to step back from his work for a period of years to be there for his wife and kids. How can you tap all this goodness? You'll find he has private practice with offices in San Francisco and Corte Madera, and he's available via Zoom throughout California. He's also on Facebook, 
at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Keith Sutton. You can begin your web crawl by going to his website at Dr. Keith Sutton, that's D-R-K-E-I-T-H-S-U-T-T-O-N dot com. He's director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, and you'll find that at the relevant website. He's director of the Bay Area Community Counseling, a nonprofit. He's director of the Family Institute of Berkeley. You'll also find him that he's a past president of the Association of Family Therapists of Northern California. He's founder of Bay Area Therapists Specializing in Adolescence, and he hosts his own podcast, Therapy on the Cutting Edge. You will find links to all the aforementioned in our show notes at shrinkwrapradio.com. Hello, fellow shrinkwrappers. I have a couple of questions for you. Do you think that Dave is doing a good job? Well, I do anyway. And uh, do you wish for him to continue producing these podcasts? I sure do. So, are you willing to support him? I just did. It's easy. Go to the Shrinkwrap Radio website. Click Support on the top menu. Select the amount you wish to contribute. If you have a PayPal account, enter your credentials. If you don't have a PayPal account, you can still do one-time donations by just entering your credit card details. PayPal will take care of the rest, David will be happy, and we will all get the benefit of his excellent guests and his well-honed interview skills. Now to my last question. When will you do it? Thank you, Sven, in Sweden. I like the question you pose at the end. I know some people out there listen and put off becoming donors. Thank you for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to listener and stellar family therapist, Dr. Keith Sutton, for telling us about his exciting and innovative work in family therapy and the many training resources he's providing. Next week, my guest will be psychologist and psychoanalyst Dr. Ignacio Ingalati, author of the new book Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.